Welcome back to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. We share uplifting stories from people all over the world working to change our planet for the better. I'm Joy and this week we speak to Fabian von Haas, the founder of Eco Living Namibia and passionate permaculture advocate. We visited Fabian in his home just outside of Vintok, Namibia, where we got to see his desert garden, solar panels, French trains, solar cooker and parabolic stove. Quite the neat setup. We also sat down to learn about permaculture and how these design principles can help with a whole raft of human problems. As always, follow along or jump ahead using our show notes on the website at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. And we'll also be making a little video of this interview. So if you want to see a summarized version of the chat, head over to our website at sustainablejungle.com forward slash global changemakers or check out our YouTube channel. Now, let's get on to today's changemaker, Fabian von Haas. Fabian, thank you so much for having us here on your farm in Namibia, just outside of Intuk. We're super excited to learn all about permaculture. But before we get into that, where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born on a farm, on a, initially a sheep farm in the south, so in the Kalahari, what is called the desert. And I grew up there, well, I was born in, in Cape Town actually, grew up on the farm. And then went to Wintook, the, the capital here, and to go to school. Then went to high school in South Africa, in Cape Town. And then I went to India for a while, and then to Europe, studied in Sweden, lived in Germany for a year, and then came back here. To give the listeners more of an idea of what it is like to live in the Kalahari or grow up in the Kalahari, I wonder if you can just expand on that experience as a, as a kid. The way I see it is the best way to grow up. You have space, you have freedom, you have safety, security. It's a different way of relating to the world and nature and yourself as well as other people. You know, on a farm you can go anywhere and everybody will know you. You have a lot of freedom to do what you like to do and, and so that's um, also very much in touch with sort of where does your food come from um, you're much more outside than you are in the city. I mean, your whole life is you're just outside, hardly yeah. ever really inside. And so you play in the mud, you play with animals, you play with plants. We, I learned to garden when I was very young. Going back to all your studies you've done now, you mentioned you studied in Sweden and you studied in Cape Town. And that was in and around environmental sciences, uh, I think zoological studies yeah. as well. Agroecology, I read. Yeah. Agroecology. Why did you f choose to focus on those subjects? So I did a, an undergrad in environmental geographical science and zoology. I sort of stumbled into that by accident, but it was because I was always very much fascinated with, with plants, with the outdoors, with nature, and was always thinking about sustainability. Even when I was a kid growing up and looking at the world, I was thinking, this doesn't look like it is good for nature, and it doesn't look like we can actually do this indefinitely. In other words, it's not sustainable. I think that's why I, I kind of got into it. And then when I was studying, I studied it because I absolutely loved it. Everything I studied was so fascinating. I couldn't believe it. It was just like, wow, this is just so awesome. And, um, and then I did botany, as, a, as an honors because I realized that my main interest is actually in plants and then there I specialized in ecology that means ecology is um, how everyone lives together how does the system together work so you don't look at the detail and tease out only the detail and, and remove it from its context you look at the entire context together that's ecology and that for me was always the most interesting because that's how ecosystems function mm -hmm. you don't that's the problem with us humans we think we are separate from nature 
we don't understand that we are part of the ecology and and therefore need to work as part of the ecology. I studied at UCT, which is uh, here, at least in Africa, uh, you know, quite a fancy university, or they, they, wanted, they, they claim they're the top university. So part of that is also quite a, a patriarchal sort of hierarchical system of thinking, at least in the sciences. So I was doing what, what you would call hard science. Um, and there it's a very reductionistic, also sometimes very hierarchical way of studying. So the system, you know, the studying system itself is right and wrong, there's exams and so on, and there's the lecturer or the professor and the students. And the professor is the god over there, and you're the numbers running through the system. But still, I enjoyed the studies. But what I realized is that hard science is not the answer. We are learning about and studying about how nature works, how systems function, how ecosystems function, and we see their degradation all the time. And we, we talk and talk and talk and write and write and write, and nothing ever happens. Mm -hmm. We don't do anything about it, but we know damn well that if we don't do anything about it, we are going to die as a species, and the environment is going to be totally destroyed. So it doesn't help just studying it and not doing anything about it. So I wanted to then continue studying something that was doing something about it. And that's why I did agroecology, because that was applying now what I had learned from before, not with all of this knowledge and bringing it into agriculture. Because agriculture has the biggest impact on the planet of anything that humans do. You know, I was studying in Sweden, which is amazing because it's a very reflective way of studying, small groups, lots of discussions. You're on the same hierarchical level as everyone else, even the vice-chancellor and your lecturers. And so it's a very fruitful, very creative, um, very collaborative, sort yeah, of collaborative, flexible environment, which makes for very nice learning. And so, yeah, we had a great library with lots of cool books. And then these people came with these books and they were like, oh, you must look at this. And that's how I first stumbled on permaculture. And it took also me a while to understand what it actually is. But I was fascinated from the beginning because it was, it was the one thing that tied everything together where all of a sudden it makes sense. This is what we can do to make a difference. This is the one thing that, that can truly make a difference. What is permaculture? A difficult one to answer because it, it can encompass everything we do as humans. So what does that mean? Is it's, it's a design system that's really important. Many people think it's only a way of gardening, only a way of producing food, but it's not that. So it's a design system for human land use to make it truly sustainable. And in permaculture, we like to go beyond sustainable because sustainable is often connected to, in people's minds with trying to do less harm. I, I must use less plastic. I must use less fuel. It's focusing on doing less bad things instead of doing more good things. Right. right? So that's why I like to talk about thriving, not thrivability, not sustainability. Because what if we humans can live on this earth in a way that whatever we do actually contributes to the ecosystem. We build up the ecosystem instead of taking it down. It's a design system and you can take anything and design it so that it's truly thrivable. For, for instance, if you're living in a, in a high-rise in the city, you have a balcony, right? You want to also grow some food and you want to reduce your waste and make sure that the waste actually that you generate is not waste, but it's actually a positive in, in, input to the environment. So then you design your balcony. Or like, for instance, where we're here, we have a, a yard. So I design the yard to make our life more thrivable. And that includes food production, but it also includes 
looking at our wastes, looking at where is energy coming from, looking at um, how do we um, respond to challenges, how do we respond to, to wildlife coming in, to pests, to using local materials, to social contacts with other people, all these sort of things. Or if you have a whole farm, you design a whole farm. Or if you're a, uh, you want to build an intentional community, you want to, you know, or a co-housing project, you develop a co-housing project with the guidelines of permaculture. You can apply it to social systems, you can apply it to food production systems, you can apply it to a home, you can apply it to urban planning. So that's why I'm saying it's not just gardening, but gardening is, or growing food, is an important factor in permaculture because the biggest environmental impact we humans have is through the food we eat. That is the biggest impact we have. So if we can change that, we're already like really making a difference. Yeah, I mean, not only is it an impact, but we also have such a huge oversupply in some countries and a shortage in other countries, right? right? Food so it's like a complete a issue, imbalance yeah. of our food yeah, systems right. around the world, yeah. That's and that's so again cool. down to design. <clears throat> yeah. Because we, we produce, as humans, we produce more calories than we need. And still we have, what is it, 800 million people on, you know, chronically malnourished. How do, how do you put those two together? It's yeah. A, mm-hmm. It, Something's very make, wrong with that design. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. make sense, right. Absolutely. So also the calls for more industrialized agriculture to feed the world, is that's missing the point completely. We're already producing more calories than we actually need. Yeah. So we don't need more calories, we just need to redesign the system. We've heard lots of different concepts like regenerative farming and agroforestry and other things that sound similar or like they're part of the permaculture umbrella is that how we should think of them or are they completely different things they're all distinct um, but they all belong into the they're all interrelated right so i think it's like in nature everything is connected um, so we talk about uh, there's regenerative farming there's conservation agriculture there's um, natural farming there's permaculture you get lots of different disciplines or areas um, of living, if we want to say sustainably, or, or doing agriculture sustainably. And that's where regenerative agriculture comes in, for instance. Mm-hmm. That's addressing only agriculture. Okay. So you can think of it as... A, as, as you, permaculture, we always try not to be a doctrine, right? We, we, we try not to be against anything per se, just because our ideology is against it. No, we always look at things to see... Has it got merit in the in the goals that we want to achieve? And so regenerative farming can really contribute to permaculture in the food growing sector. Let's say you're a commercial farmer, then you can really take from regenerative agriculture, or you could say I'm a regenerative farmer and I'm a permaculturalist because I designed the whole farm according to permaculture and I bring in um, ideas and concepts and methods from regenerative farming to make the farming aspect, the food growing aspect of it, more responsible and more sustainable, more thrivable. And so you can, what's, what for instance is a big sub-discipline or a big discipline on its own is holistic management. I don't know if you've heard about that. Right. It's, um, it's applied to everything from finance to, to business design to um, setting priorities for your personal life, but also to and managing grazing herds and managing agriculture. And that is really useful within permaculture. It's, it's separate, but it can also be integrated with permaculture, and permaculture can be integrated with nature farming, for instance, from Japan. 
from a permaculture perspective, if somebody is thinking about how to frame it in their own minds, say you had a, a permaculture garden or a permaculture farm, what would be some of the unique features be that you would see there? That is distinct from, let's say, a neighbor who doesn't do permaculture. Exactly. I think that's a good question because it sort of makes it a bit more practical, the concept. So let's say I'm a permaculture farmer and my neighbor is not. My, my neighbor, just as an example, is an industrial farmer and I'm a permaculture farmer. The, the main difference between my system and his system is going to be that I created a, first a design. So I start my system from observation of nature, of the cycles, of myself, of the social environment, the local economy. And from that observation, I then design my system. Whereas he or she next door would have looked at the bottom line. You need to find a, a farming model that is profitable. So I go to my neighbors and I ask them what, what works well in this area and they say dairy farming. Then I work it out, make my spreadsheets and say yes, this makes sense under the, under the bottom line, it's good. How many uh, cows can we squeeze through right, the bottom? How many cows can we get in here? Probably we have to intensify because there's more and more competition which mean, means bringing in feed and so on and so forth. So there's also a design on his or her farm, but it's a different approach to design. It's a much flatter design because you're only looking at one outcome, and that's finance. And, and permaculture looks at many, many, many different outcomes. It's a little bit difficult to, to also conceptualize if you've never seen a design. But let's say, for instance, another aspect that you mentioned just now is, is really important is that, for instance, an industrial dairy farmer will have quite a similar operation if he's now operating in, in Namibia or in the Southern Cape or in Eastern Australia, right. right? It will be more or less the same sort of operation. Whereas when I design a permaculture system here, where we are here, it will look completely different from the Southern Cape. Because here we're in a brittle system, which means there's rain only during one time of the year and the rest of the year is very dry. So I need to really design against uh, heat and to mitigate drought and to mitigate extremely strong sun. And that, for instance, will make a totally different system than in the Cape. The species I choose will be completely different. Here I will really try and make the system small, have lots of shade trees, bring in hedges to keep the wind out and, and really like mulch the ground really thickly, use drip irrigation to minimize my water usage and try and catch as much rainwater as I can. And when I'm in the Southern Cape, for instance, where it rains all year round, I have my system so nuclear because then it'll get too moist inside. There will be too many fungi on my plants, you know, mushrooms growing, the bad kind, you know, yeah. your lake blight and so on and so forth. So the system will com look completely different, even though I used exactly the same guiding design principles. So it's more concepts that we use in permaculture and then how the system looks comes out of the local context. But we also look at profitability, obviously. Nowadays, you, you, you don't live on just thin air, you know. So, so money is very important in the system as well because we, in permaculture, you see money as just another energy form in the system. It can do work. And that's, I guess, would also be a difference mostly between my system and, for instance, an industrialized farmer next door. He needs to have money as a central figure in his business because there's no resilience designed into the system. If there's a drought and he doesn't have insurance, that's going to be him, you know. For me, it doesn't matter because I have swales and I have so much water stored in tanks and in the soil, I can survive the drought for a while. I love thinking about money as a, just another energy source and just one right. of many. And uh, that very much plays into that idea you were talking about thrivability. 
Whereas you hit with hard times, well, the system you've created is a very robust one. Yeah, so, so robust is a good way to say, is a good word for resilience. That's what we're trying to do. Whatever you do, try and make your life more resilient, more robust. And that's unfortunately nowadays, if you're, in, if you're plugged into the normal money economy, you're really dependent on the economy. Your life is not robust. If you get retrenched... Or if there's a financial crisis, like exactly. there was in 2008... Then what? Because you don't produce your own food. Mm. You don't know how to mend your clothes or repair your car. No idea. If the water runs out of the tap, you know, like for instance, now in Cape Town, if they switch off the water, there's millions of people that don't have water. That's and that's sort of a really important factor of a human life. You know, water is very important. Without electricity, you can still make do. Without water, mm, not, not so, so much. much. Yeah, and in the permaculture design, you always design in redundancy. It means you, the important functions like water you have many systems, at least three, that perform the same function. So, for instance, here we have, for, for water, we have borehole water. That's the one. Then we have um, rainwater in the tank. That's the other. And then we reuse our water. So we have three functions. If the borehole, if it breaks, it can be fixed, but it sometimes takes a week or two. So for that time, we still have the rainwater. If the borehole runs dry, for instance, or there's a bit of a major problem, the garden will, might also die. But because we're recycling the grey water from the house and we still have rainwater stored, we're still robust. The system can still bounce back and survive the shock. But for instance, if this house was in the city and I only had tap water and the municipality runs out of water and switches off the water, that's it. Well, we were just in, um, we were just in Brazil and they were having major problems with gas. So the gas prices had gone up and everybody was striking mm. about the gas. And because they were striking, no food was getting to the supermarkets. And so we were like very reliant on our vegetables. And so we went to the supermarket to try to buy vegetables and there was nothing. Nothing. Not no. a single vegetable in the supermarket. We had to just buy... I think like, it was a rock melon and that was it. We bought one rock melon to, for a whole week. We were like in a little bit of a panic mode. We were yeah. just thinking like how fragile the system is today in the cities. You know, if, if one little thing breaks in the system, the whole system's done. Yeah, yeah fragile, fragile, that's really it. Yeah. We, we've designed human civilization to be extremely and ever more fragile. And I don't think that's a good idea. We've spoken about what a, a, a permaculture setup would look like versus an industrial setup. What would the outcomes be of your farm versus your neighbor's industrial farm? Like, What are the benefits of permaculture? So you have 12 design principles in, in permaculture. And whatever you design, whatever you do, you always keep in mind all of those principles. And they're all equally important. And um, one of them is produce no waste. Because if we look into nature, there is no waste. Nature does not know waste. What might be one plant's or one animal's waste is another one's treasure. That's how it works. This is a design principle we take into our human land use as well. So what we're, thri what we're striving for in the permaculture system, one of the outcomes, which is, I guess, not something that we usually think of as an outcome, is to not produce waste, which is completely different from how we otherwise live our life, where we just create waste at an alarming rate. So that's one of the outcomes which already makes our environmental impact much more benevolent, right? Because we, we look at everything we use and we ask ourselves, how can the waste from this one subsystem be an input to another subsystem? For instance, a dairy farmer will have problems with um, manure piling up because he's got a very large herd concentrated on a very small area. And so now the manure from the cows is becoming a problem. It's a waste. 
because it, it leaches the nitrates, leach into the water, they eutrophy waters, kill fish, create algal blooms, create dead zones, so on and so forth. And um, so he's creating waste. Whereas in a permaculture system, we would we would never concentrate so many cattle in one spot because of this problem. But we do have cattle. And so the waste from the cattle, the manure, is actually going into the compost. We don't create waste. That's one of the outcomes. The other one, in terms of sustainability, is obviously that our system is extremely well adapted to the local context. So that means we don't sort of implant ourselves or, or enforce ourselves on the context and create damage to the local environment because of that, as well as the local economy. We would, for instance, in a permaculture system, you would never really have a, an industrial dairy in a country like Namibia. Too dry. You need fresh, green grass for dairy cattle. So, so by putting a dairy in an industrial dairy in Namibia, which does happen, we have mostly one and some smaller ones, they're actually creating a huge environmental problem. And so that's another outcome that we have, is that we actually respect the local environment as well as the local social environment. So you, that means you pay your, your employees a proper, decent salary. That is important because I myself would like to be paid a decent salary. That's why I pay employees a decent salary. I also want them to do decent work. Part of the ecosystem. Yeah, they're part of the ecosystem, for sure. And I understand that they have families. So if I pay them a meager wage, then what do I expect their family life to look like? How do I expect their kids to grow up? And do I think that's going to be in the long run good for me socially if around me the social and economic environment is degrading? So that's, that's the sort of social aspect. And then the economic aspect is that you, in permaculture, always the farm will try and get as much input that it needs locally. So we try not to import soya from Brazil, for instance, to feed pigs. No, we try and grow it ourselves. Or if we have a friend, a neighbor that is a neighboring farmer, we try, if he's got silage, buy silage from him because we want the money to rotate in the local economy. That's another thing. The energy that you use in permaculture systems, if possible, you want it to be renewable. Um, so you minimize fuel use such as diesel, petrol and when you do use it, you use it in a way that you can make the most use of it. So you try and leverage its power because diesel is a very powerful fuel. So we use it to do earthworks. It just really speeds up doing earthworks. If you did that with shovels, it would take much too long. It would be way too expensive. So we do use non-renewable fossil resources, but only in a very pinpointed way. And then we make sure that the energy we put into the system with that diesel has to be produced out of the system again, manifold. Um, yeah, so that's another outcome that we do. And then the main outcome is obviously healthy human life. That is, that we do this to live healthy lives. Healthy, fun, enjoyable lives. That's why we do it. And we do it in a way that we can actually thrive in the environment and keep it going for hopefully indefinitely. One thing that I liked about this concept was in the context of regenerative farming that I think would apply with permaculture for sure as well. As we had an interview with a guy who makes honeymead and he sources his honey only from regenerative farms because he's really worried about bee populations and bee collapse in the right. US. So this was in this was in Southern California and he was telling us about how these farms are becoming like really nice places for bees to exist because they're so you know, in tune with the natural environment and mm. planting the local flowers and all that sort of thing. And I wondered if that was, you know, a big part of permaculture as well, is creating habitats for the little species that live around. 
that's a huge aspect of permaculture. The, the, the more diverse your system is, the healthier it is because it becomes more resilient. So what we humans in general do is we, we decrease the diversity of systems the, of the natural environment around ourselves and that destabilizes the system. So in permaculture we do the opposite. We design for as much diversity as possible and local diversity. If they are species that are locally useful, we bring in those species. And they are always locally useful species, always. So we bring in and design with these species in mind because with those species, we then support the local fauna and flora. And the local biodiversity is the one that is the strongest because it's obviously evolved in this place. So it knows exactly how to deal with the challenges here. If you only bring in things from outside, then they are not actually totally adapted to your place, which might make them and will definitely make them vulnerable. In permaculture, you have zones. So you have, it depends on how you look at it, but there are five main zones. And zones are, is a concept of where to place what on a, for instance, farm or a balcony or a co-housing project. If you have goats to milk every day, you want them to, uh, to be as close to your house as possible because that's where you naturally are anyway. You don't want them to be half a kilometer down the road because then you need to walk a half a kilometer two times a day back and forth. To avoid that, we have zones and it starts with zone zero, which is your house. Then zone one, which is close to your house, where you spend most time, where you put those elements that need your, the most care. And then zones two, three, four and five. And zone five is the wild zone. So we intentionally leave a portion of our system if you have a balcony or if you have a yard or if you have a farm, we intentionally leave part of the system and that we don't touch. Um, so yes, permaculture has that local biodiversity in mind and you leave a zone specifically for that because we understand that the local environment is what supports us. And we don't know what treasures are in the local environment. So if we destroy it, we might be destroying something that is actually supremely useful to us as well as to the health of the system. It's very intricate. It's, it's very, yeah, it's a, it's a quite a deep subject. That's why there's a, if you do permaculture, you do usually a, a PDC, a permaculture design course. It's a international standard and it's a 12 day design, very, very intensive design course. Very, very intense. And that's how you learn the, the basics of the design process. So it takes 12 full days to kind of get a grip on how how does this work? Very yeah, because then I imagine it takes years to learn the local Yeah, and then knowledge. it takes a lifetime to observe and interact with your system and then continuously improve it because we realize that we learn continuously. There's no such thing as perfect systems. Absolutely. We make mistakes, lots of mistakes. Focusing on Namibia specifically, on your website you mentioned that there's special conditions here and we've kind of alluded to what those are already. Mm. But I wonder if you could explain how permaculture or why permaculture something people in Namibia need to think about? Well, I don't think they need to think about it, but I would like them to think about it. <laughs> because, I mean, everyone can do what they like. Permaculture is, a, is, is something that can really help us in Namibia because we live in a very harsh environment. And when I, mean ha when I say harsh, I mean it's extremely dry. Where we are here, we get about 300 millimeters of rain a year. That's in itself very little. And it only comes during three, maximum four months of the year. The rest of the year, it's bone dry. But I mean bone dry. Um, so this is a big challenge because usually 
um, people have congregated along rivers, oceans and where it's moist, where there's continuous rain, because you can grow food. So our food growing capacity in the Namibia is very limited, over and above utilizing the land for grazing animals. But you also cannot eat meat all day long. I mean, you can, but then you get gout and all sorts of things, so you don't want to. Yeah. So that is a big challenge that we have in Namibia. It's very hot in summer, which, which stresses plants and animals, and it's getting ever hotter. We're really subject to climate change, and, it's, and the humidity of the air is very low. Because we humans, we nowadays, especially in cities, think we're disconnected from what supports us, and what supports us are ecosystems. We need... Uh, fibers to clothe, clothe ourselves and we need food, we need wood and, and brick and concrete to build buildings and all of these sort of things and that has to come from somewhere. And so that's why we generally talk about the carrying capacity of the land. Often we talk about that in farming. How many cows can you put per uh, hectare for instance that that hectare can sustainably feed them? That is the carrying capacity of the land and it will be much lower here than for instance in in let's say Queensland where it's very green because there's the plant growth is just much more rapid so it can support more humans per square meter or square kilometer than it can here um, because the environment is just much more um, abundant in the things that humans need and our environment here in Namibia is not abundant in that sense at least not for a large population for a small population it's fine but our population is growing very fast and together with that, we're really plugging into the, the global consumptive life, lifestyle, which in the end means we import almost everything. And that makes us extremely unsustainable. And um, not just economically, it's bad for the balance sheet. Also in terms of environmentally, it's not sustainable to truck everything in. And that's why we, we should be looking at permaculture so that we can at least try and mitigate as much of that as possible to take radical responsibility for where my life comes from, what sustains my life. That is what permaculture can do for us. And that's why I think it's, it's something that is really valuable in Namibia. But it's a very challenging environment because of the lack of water, mostly. Mm. That makes it very, very difficult. And from a global standpoint, what sort of problems does permaculture solve? All of them. All of them. <laughs> yeah. So permaculture can solve all of our problems because we take radical responsibility for our life. We look at every aspect of our life. and we, For instance, you would ask yourself, is this, I'm about to buy 10 t-shirts that are on sale. Do I actually need that? Will that contribute to my personal happiness? Do I feel happy and content with the environmental impact that's having? Whereas I could just buy one t-shirt. That should be fine as well. Right? So we look at every aspect of our life and we start taking responsibility and saying, I want to learn where this comes from. I want to learn what is the impact this is having and I want to be sure that I'm happy with that. Am I happy to have such an impact on, for instance, labor in Bangladesh by buying 10 cheap t-shirts instead of one proper one that hands have made that will pay a decent wage? Permaculture was formed in the 70s in Australia by most notably two guys, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. And Bill Mollison is now late, um, but he once said that all the world's problems can be solved in a garden, which might seem a bit hippie-ish, but it really <laughs> is like that. A gar if, you, if you sort of expand the concept of a garden, so if we don't just grow food, but we also grow timber, we also grow fiber, we also grow human relationships, mm. we grow a locally sustainable economy, 
connection to ourselves also. It's yeah. really important in, in this world. I believe we've really lost touch with two things. The first is nature, which makes us very sick, and ourselves, which makes us very sick. So we need to reconnect with nature, which is easy through permaculture, and we need to reconnect with ourselves, which is also easy with permaculture, because you start looking at yourself and you say, what is important to me? Is it important to me to drive a huge car, to work a very stressful job, which I don't enjoy? Is that what I want in my life, or is, it, is, is there something else I want? Is there, do I want healthy human relationships? A thriving social community where I feel held and safe? Do I want a local economy where I support the elderly and the disabled? Do I want a healthy environment that provides good soil, nutritious food, clean air, uh, alive water, clean water? Is that what I want? And I think most of us would answer the latter, probably. Surely. Yeah, surely. <laughs> and, and so that's why yeah, permaculture solves all of those issues. It's, it's not easy because if you decide to redesign your life, you also need to redesign your underlying assumptions. And that is not easy. And what you value. Exactly. Yeah. And the way you look at the world. Mm. So it is a, is, a, is a process. But also what, what's interesting, what you said, was that how to get other people to, to look at... at at their values in life and to choose a new way. The best way to do that is to live that way yourself. That's the most effective way because you will never, or it's very unlikely that you can tell someone to do something and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, I'll go and do that, you know, even though it goes completely against everything I believe. It's very unlikely. But if you live that path and they come to your house and they think, my goodness, these people, this is so cool, you know. Look how happy they are. Look yeah, how look content. how happy. This food is just amazing. I, mm. You know, there's just such a nice vibe here, you know, around the table with all the friends and family sitting here, you know. Then they might think, ah, I would also like to try this, you know. And then start small. Anyway, we start small, you know, and build up. Yeah. From there. And I will say, sitting here... It's pretty awesome vibe. Yeah, it's such a cool <laughs> yeah. In your home, yeah, outside of a dog. It's beautiful. And I, I think I just had one more question, going back to the serious parts about what we're facing today. What what worries you most? Well, it's, it's difficult to put in, in short words. I'll try. I think the whole way we approach life as humans, as a civilized, the design of our civilization, we think of ourselves as civilized, which I think is... is, is quite inaccurate, very uncivilized, <laughs> yeah. actually. I agree. Yeah. And um, so the way we design our life, that we design our society to be a cons along a consumptive model, we, so we have a cradle-to-grave model. All materials and energies are, are come from the cradle. They go one way through our system, and then they're dumped in landfills, in the sea, in the air, in people's bodies, in the soil. That's a very, very poor design for a system, and it doesn't serve us, so we need to get rid of it. So what I see in, in terms of the trajectory of humans currently, I might come across as quite pessimistic. I think inevitable that we will collapse. Our civilizations are busy collapsing. We're just starting to see the, the, the beginnings, and, um, and it will happen quite rapidly, I think. Well, tell us now what you're doing about it. Like you are, you've dedicated your life already to, to helping to solve this problem. So tell us about eco-living Namibia. What is it and how did it come to be? 
So eco living is basically it's my sort of business vessel that I that my my business front for for everything I do. The aim in what I do is to teach people and to live a better alternative. That is all I do. So it's education on this topic. Yeah. It's like how do it's, we So I offer courses to private people. I offer courses to uh, farmer groups that have gotten together and organized themselves. I offer courses to um, urban folk. I give training, hands-on, very, very practical training to informal settlement dwellers, or what you would maybe call slums, um, to the rural poor. I try and educate also, so I try to disseminate information. I write newspaper columns. I, I, okay, with a blog, I've been very poor, but it's also because on the farm, the internet's very bad. So, <laughs> nice and so, disconnected. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I try and um, um, I give interviews like this one and others. And, and most of all, I, I live what I preach, not only to, to gain experience and knowledge myself and skills because I want to know what I'm talking about, but also to, to inspire other people and, and show that another way is possible. We can live in another way. So that's what eco-living eco is, is really all about. And an important aspect of it is, is the work with people. I see that as very, very important the social aspect. In that way, I'm lucky because I enjoy, I enjoy my fellow Namibians. I enjoy working with people. I enjoy, because we, very, we have a lot of different cultures here. But growing up on the farm, again, was, as I said before, you know, that social aspect is a, um, I have a very close appreciation or deep appreciation for how people think and interact in this country. So that gives me a unique opportunity to, to come in and suggest other ways of doing things. Because I know the rhythm of the people. Mm. I know the words they use, the concepts, how they think, how that culture works, what's important here. You know? That's also a really fun aspect of doing this work. I go out to rural areas in the bush, camp out there, and work with people, and teaching them how to grow food on a very basic level, you know, very basic. That's really inspiring work. It's super cool. What is the, the vision? Like, what impact do you want to have? I would love it to be exactly as it is now. Awesome. So, so working with people and, um, and inspiring them and equipping them with the skills they need. At the moment, it's mostly food production because in the moment we're at this stage. We, we traditionally have not produced much of our food ourselves. It used to almost entirely come from South Africa. We're getting better at this, but there's a long way to go. So that's where we need a lot of skills to come in. And we don't have many skills in the mobile because there's not that much quality education that people engage in or mm. that people can take advantage of. So it's very important that I'm here and I offer these, these skills to people. It's really, really important. I'm happy with the way it's going at the moment. Sometimes it will be nice to have a more far-reaching um, effect, but it's also only so much that I can do as one person. And that's why I, I collaborate with other people. For instance, with Donovan, the Ilolo Permaculture Group. We watched the, um, the video on your website at the Katatura. Is that mm -hmm. the right Katatura, way to say it? Yeah. yeah. Can you share maybe a couple of stories or a story of, of an example of how this has impacted somebody's life? So what I've seen, for instance, um, not now in Katatura, but if I can give an example from, from Bushmanland. So Bushmanland is it's the Nyai Conservancy in the northeast corner of Namibia. So Namibia has that very funny strip, the Caprivi strip, that yes. little arm that's sticking out in the oh, northeast. Yeah. Just below there in the main body of the, la of the country is a, is a national park, the Kaudum National Park, extremely remote. And below that is the Nyai Nyai Conservancy. So a conservancy is a 
community organization basically where people have gotten together to protect their local environment and make a living from it. And the Nanya Conservancy is the oldest conservancy in the country, arguably the best working. And one of the reasons is that there's only one group living there, and that's the, the Jumkwa Bushmen, or San. So I go there regularly, and I travel from village to village, or we bring the people together, and we work in a village on gardening, organic gardening, permaculture-inspired um, gardening, conservation agriculture. So they live in villages, which is more or less a family, but it's sort of extended family. Sometimes it's difficult knowing who's now the uncle. They say it's my sister, but you're not sure if it's the blood sister or... But it's, it's a concept of a clan or belonging together. And so Krau is one, one man who's in, in a village called Kapteinpos. A, a beautiful place. Absolutely amazing. It's a, Nyanya is, is a very unique place because it's one of the last places in the world where I've been and where I felt that nature is still working. And so this village is in the middle of that. And, um, and Krau has really taken what, what I teach, these very basic organic gardening methods, and really applied it to, to his garden. And he's really taken gardening and, and ran with it. So when I come there, it's just beautiful. Coming into his garden, which is lush, and everything is growing in between each other. All the different levels of plants are stacked on top of each other. You have incredible diversity. There's food wherever you look. I ask him, so, because this is a question I also have, what impact is this having on your life? What impact, is this having an impact, what I teach, on your life? And he says, this is having a massive impact. He can feed up to 30 people with wow. this garden. Wow. 30 people? 30 people. Which for me is, that is where I draw strength from. Because there's a lot of discouraging events also, because it's a, it's a harsh environment. People get discouraged. It's a lot about rep repetition, coming again, coming again, encouraging, repeating, encouraging, repeating. So it can be very tough, this work. But when I come to a garden like that, it's really, my heart really opens. I feel so, like, energetic, you know, it's so, this is why I do it. That's this so cool. is why, because that is organic food. There's no pesticides. This food has not been hurried in its growth with fertilizers, with all sorts of techniques. This is nutrient-dense, high-quality food. And especially for the Bushmen there, who most, we would say live in poverty. They wouldn't necessarily say that. But they have very poor diets nowadays because they don't rely so much anymore on the, on the gathered foods. So they eat a lot of white uh, um, maize meal, which is very poor in nutrition. Eat a lot of industrial cooking oil, lots and lots of white sugar. So it's a very poor diet. So any real nutrition that can come in is very important. So that, for instance, is a story where I love going to his garden. That's because it's like, really cool. And the thing is, I encourage people to, as I said before, grow your garden. Leave the other people alone. They will come once your garden grows. And if they come, I encourage you to teach them. And he started doing this. So there was another um, a really old guy. And, um, and we, we came to his house and all of a sudden he had this huge garden. <laughs> but I've never taught him. <laughs> And I asked this guy, like, where do you have this garden from? He says, no, Kao taught me. So sometimes it's really encouraging to do this sort of work. It's the bottom of the pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy, right? It's that very, the basic needs. Right. And teaching people those skills is fundamental to having some quality of human life. Yeah. So, so important. But it also has, a, in terms of the human psyche, it has a huge impact because now these people who've, 
in our Namibian nation, unfortunately, politically have been marginalized and and um, treated in a derogatory way. Their sense of self-worth is not always where you would like it to be, or where I would like it to be. I would say it's not always quite strong that they feel we are valued in this society. We are strong. We can look after ourselves. We know what it takes to lead a successful life, a happy life. They don't always have that. But to grow a garden and be successful with it gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense of, I can sustain myself. I can look after my family and my village. And that gives you power. Yeah. So, it's, so it's that basic need of food, but it's also other needs that we're meeting by doing this. It's not just that need. It's other needs. And then also Kral can sell every now and then. He sells vegetables, for instance, at the AGM of the Conservancy where they meet for a whole week. He supplied the whole AGM. There were 80 people for a week oh with wow. vegetables. So that was a very good income for him as well. That's so cool. with that income, then he bought uh, clothing for his kids that are going to school, you know, which otherwise he couldn't have afforded. So it can have a very, very positive effect in a number of aspects of life, if, if not all of them, actually. To wrap things up, Fabian, can you pull out from all these nuggets of wisdom, maybe one or two key messages from your work in permaculture that you would like to share with the listeners out there? Well, it's quite difficult to <laughs> distill it down. I think uh, one of the central messages is that I would encourage anyone and everyone to really take responsibility for themselves. And uh, that might sound a bit abstract, but what I mean by that is start really looking. Start really observing. Start with yourself. How do I feel? How do I feel now? How do I feel today? Why did I get so angry? And then you can go to, when you're in the supermarket, turn over every product you buy. Absolutely every single one. And in the beginning, if you've never thought about these things, you will read a lot of things in the ingredients, to look at the ingredients list, right? Uh, you will read a lot of ingredients that you won't have the slightest idea what they are. Your grandmother certainly didn't have these things in the pantry. Like E149, you know. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? No. So, so start taking responsibility that way. And by choosing yes or no, is this something I want? Do I want to support an industrial model of agriculture? And you can see it on the back of the pa package. You can see if it has a lot of E's and antioxidants and stabilizers and colorants, that's an industrial product. Do I want to support this? What does it mean to support industrial agriculture? So inform yourself. And then start taking responsibility for every single aspect of your life. Am I going to buy that jacket? Am I going to buy those pants they're made of polyester? Do I know the health effect of polyester? Is that something I support? Do I need that new TV when the old one is still working? That's actually all encompassed in permaculture, but it boils down to really spending time to inform yourself, to observe, and then take responsibility. Because if we all did that, we live in a different. We would live in a very different society. When yeah. we act as adults, everybody is an adult that says, "Yes, I am here, and I take responsibility." I'm so inspired. I want as soon as we get back to Australia, we live in an apartment and we have a balcony, but it's a big balcony and there's plenty of space. Where would we go? What resources could we use or look at? You know, look up to try and get our own little permaculture garden happening on our balcony. So what I would suggest, the first thing that I would do if I was you if you are financially and time-wise able to do it, is I would do a PDC, a permaculture oh, really? design course, 
not only because you're in Australia where it originated, you have amazing people in Australia. Super, super inspiring. David Holmgren, the co-founder of Permaculture, is still around. He lives in, is it Queensland? No, I don't think it's Queensland. But somewhere in Australia. Um, Jeff Lawton, who is arguably the rock star of permaculture, does PDCs in, in Australia, lives in Australia. That's where the Permaculture Research Institute is. So that's what I would suggest you to do. Also because it completely realigns the way you think about yourself and life and the world. And then on a, on a balcony, the first thing that I would suggest is your, your paper, all of your paper, and your organic wastes. I would make a worm farm. Yes. A vermicompost. Right? We've been talking We've about this. We've been talking this. about this for yeah. ages. Yeah. You can actually shred up all your paper. Sometimes you have paper that has a plastic covering on it. When you rip the paper, you see there's a plastic layer coming off. That you cannot give to the worms because they don't eat the plastic. But all the other high-gloss magazines, toilet rolls, toilet rolls newspaper, um, old print paper, you can all rip that up, even if it has ink on it, because nowadays most inks are soya-based. So they're plant-based, they're non-toxic. So you rip it up, you put it in your vermicompost. And all your organic waste, because organic waste has, has no business in a landfill, really, or a recycling facility. It has no mm. business there. It should be recycled. And then from that, you get uh, your vermicast or vermicompost and your vermitea. And then you, you grow pots. Now, I'm, I'm not familiar so much with the climate in, in Melbourne, but you will have to design for your hot wind, uh, summers, the, the heat waves, definitely. And um, you will have to design for your, your local climate as well as your microclimate. It depends where is your, your balcony facing. Is it facing north, west? It's, it's facing east. East, which is, which is ideal. The morning sun is the best sun. And then you need to look at, you said you have a lot of wind in, in Melbourne. Do you get a lot of wind on the balcony? Not too no, bad. It's very, no. it's very Then sheltered. you can grow herbs probably. So I would say, you know, grow, grow. look at what you like eating. So if you like eating salad, you said you eat a lot of vegetables, so it's always nice to have herbs for when you cook vegetables. So grow thyme, grow rosemary, grow parsley, coriander, all of these sort of things. Grow some lettuce. So I would really try and look at how big is your balcony, and then you put your vermicompost, and then you grow pots. And then, and so that's now your beginning of your, you're starting to take responsibility for where your food comes from. Awesome. And then in, in Australia, I'm sure in Melbourne, there are lots of really great organic farmers markets. They and are. then you start going only to those as a matter of principle. Mm. So I buy my food there. Why? Because I want to know the person that grows my food because I want quality food mm. and I want to know who I'm supporting. I want mm. to support a local economy. You can buy yourself a, um, a bricks reader. It's a refractometer, so it's a, it, um, you take a drop of vegetable juice or fruit juice, whatever you want to eat or buy, and it's a little machine that has a little chamber. You put that drop of vegetable or, or fruit juice or sap in there, and it shines light through it, and the refraction, the way that light refracts tells you the nutrient density what? of it. Wow. So if you want to really you know, start taking <laughs> control of, I want to eat high-quality, nutrient-dense food, then you can go to your farmer's market, buy a lettuce, buy a broccoli, squeeze some juice out of it and have your test. And that way you can actually determine which farmer has the most nutrient-dense food. The other aspect is also what energy bring, does the food bring with it. This is a bit more ethereal, but was it grown in a stressed, high-pressure environment mm. where it needs to perform only for one function and that is major, major yield per hectare? 
even if it only contains water mostly? Or was it grown in an environment where it was very healthy, a slow environment where lots of different organisms could collaborate and grow together? I saw something on Facebook the other day. They had two plants in two different boxes and one, one plant they had people come and bully it, yeah. talk to it and like talk negatively to it. And the other one, they would be like, I love you, you're beautiful. Da, da, da. And that plant just does so much better. Does so much better just from words that people yeah. spoke to it. Never mind like the rest of the environment right. and having other plants around. But that's nuts, right? Yeah. Wasn't that that it was by Ikea? that Something film. like that, yeah. yeah. It's a repetition of an experiment that was done in the 60s already. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a book. Not sure if it's also called this in English, but in German it's called The Secret Life of Plants. Oh, yes, oh, yes, it's oh, on my book list. Those, uh, they, they measure electric current, very fine, small electric currents in plants, you can, and, and usually in, in humans, but then this researcher put it to plants and measured actually nervous system or reactions of plants to different things done to them. That's crazy. Yeah, very, 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 very crazy. In the 60s, very crazy. People thought he was totally loony, but he did it in a in a rigorous fashion, in a scientific fashion. Amazing. And yeah. showed that plants feel things like, yeah. Where can people find you, Fabian? I have a Facebook page, Eco Living Namibia, where people can find me. But that's mostly only to, to provide um, a sort of portal of contact, so a gateway. So there's my, my number, my email address, or you can, people can also message me directly. But otherwise, I'm not very active on Facebook. Simply because I don't really... Because you're always, in the garden. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I don't always agree with Facebook's whole world. Sure. And the effect it has on our lives. And um, otherwise, my website, ecolivingnam.com, I think it is. Um, so if you if you Google Eco Living Namibia or Fabian von Hase, you'll, you'll find me. The Great. best way to get in touch with me is via email, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Fabian. We have thoroughly enjoyed this and... I think we'd probably be in touch when we're back in Melbourne to get some more tips and advice <laughs> on our own little veggie garden on our balcony. Welcome. Thank yeah. you so much. And now we're going to hit the garden and, and we're going to see, see it in action. We hope that you enjoyed this episode with Fabian and we hope that it helps you to think and do a little differently. We could all certainly apply a little more design thinking to everything that we do, especially from an environmental and impact perspective. Now, if you're a regular listener, we have a favor to ask. The world is run by reviews, so we would be most grateful if you could leave one of those for us on whatever podcasting app you're using. It would most certainly make our day. Thank you so much for being here, and we will see you next time.